You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. John Marks is going to speak this morning. And yes, you can clap if you like. I have, um, I've got four children and there are things about each one of them I really admire. And when I think about John Mark, I think about when he was uh, a teenager and he decided he wanted to sing and play the guitar and I guess write music. And people told him he couldn't sing. Told him he couldn't sing. But he wouldn't stop because God had put something in his heart and he wouldn't give up. And the Lord really blessed it. And he's a picture of you. The Lord put something in your heart. Stick with it. I don't believe you can pick, you know, people say, whatever you want to do. You try. No, I ain't going to play in the NFL, ladies and gentlemen. No matter what I do, but what God puts in your heart to do, that's the difference. So I love John Mark, love all my kids, my grandkids, but this is John Mark. All right. You might could play in the NFL though. They do, they got new technology, you know, with your brain and stuff. You could download you. I mean, I'm kind of joking, but kind of not. Hey. It's good to see you guys. Um, before I jump in, I want to say that um, in two weeks, my good buddy Ted Kim is going to be speaking. I personally requested him as a guest speaker this summer because he has a ton to say about the subject we've been talking about. He's also one of my favorite human beings. He's brilliant. And he has this contagious joy that makes me want to love Jesus and reminds me why I ever got involved with God or church to begin with. So two weeks, Ted Kim, he's my buddy. Don't miss, don't miss Ted. All right. Um, All summer long, we've been talking about story, about why the stories we tell ourselves matter and about how our stories shape us and about the story of God. And I realize the word story can be or has been a little bit of a buzzword uh, in the past couple of years. And I think there's a reason for it. I think we're living in a bit of a meaning crisis in the modern world. I was going to talk about that this week, but I'm not going to talk about that directly this week because I have something else I want to talk about. But I want to say that it's not just a buzzword. I think it's a way to talk about something that really, really matters. And we've been talking about it all summer. And I want to read something that I read uh, about a month ago when I spoke, just to sort of open up, because I think this is really important. The story of God is being written even as we speak. And you have a role to play in it. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be good at anything. You don't have to be rich or wise. You don't have to be a zealot or a fiery preacher. You just have to be willing. I believe the kingdom of God is and has been moving in your own quiet life for some time. 
It just takes time to learn how to see it. But if we're willing to become disciples of Christ, then we can learn over time to recognize the invisible movements of God in the seemingly common spaces that we occupy. But it all begins with a simple command. Change your mind for the commonwealth of God is already here. All right, guys, why don't you stand up and let's read some scriptures together. I got about three scriptures and then a word from a a wise sage. Um, Genesis 3, 9. We'll try to read this together. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Matthew 25, 29. For everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's kind of a bummer one right there. But this next one is good. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. All right, here's the, the last one is not scripture per se. Kip. I reckon you know a lot about cyberspace. You ever come across anything like time travel? It's Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. I'm going to try and get, make that make sense a little bit later. You can sit down. So the friend of mine was a police officer for a long, long time. And he told me this story. And I'm not sure if the story was true or not or if it was just kind of a dad joke. But I get the feeling that it was pretty true. So this police officer was, you know, on the side of the road catching speeders with the laser gun. And he saw a man and his wife driving down the highway, sitting in the front seat. The driver did not have his seatbelt on. So the police officer decided to pull him over and write him a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt. So he pulled the man over. And as he pulled the man over, the man grabbed the seatbelt and clicked it on. And the police officer said, hey, do you know why I pulled you over? And the man says, no, I have no idea. He said, well, it's because you weren't wearing your seatbelt. And the man says, I I am, in fact, wearing my seatbelt, officer, as you can see. I've had it on the whole time. He says, but, sir, I saw you put the seatbelt on as I pulled you over. And he said, officer, I don't know what you're talking about. I've had the seatbelt on the entire time. And so the police officer gets frustrated and leans over to the man's wife and says, listen, you look like an honest lady. Can you just tell me the truth? We all know that he saw me pulling him over. He saw me coming and he put his seatbelt on so he wouldn't get a ticket. And she goes, officer, after all this time, I've learned one thing. And that's not to argue with him while he's drunk. You say, I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> stranger things have happened. Have you ever dug into a problem, though, and realized the problem isn't the problem? Sure you have. 
Have you ever dug into the problem and realized the problem wasn't the problem? Well, with this in mind, I want to pick up kind of where I left off a few weeks ago with the story of the wicked servant. If you remember, there was a um, boss man. He was leaving for a number of years and he left some money for three of his servants. Right? They're called talents. Um, I don't understand how, you know, the ancient economy works, but basically talents are a form of money. Right? And he gave talents to three servants and two servants invested the money or did things and they made more. And so when the master came back, they gave the boss man even more money than he had left them. But this third person, this third person did not. And this is Matthew 25. We'll pick it up at about 23. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, this is the third person, he also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Whoo! Don't you hate that verse? For everyone who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is a hard saying. And Jesus actually says this a couple of times in different contexts. But this one is most interesting to me. Because, if you'll notice, if you take that verse all by itself, It's a little complex to understand. How can you take something from someone if they don't have anything? To those who have, more will be given. To those who don't have, what they do have will be taken away. But if you take it in this specific context, you realize that the wicked servant actually did have something. He actually did have something. He thought the problem was that he didn't have something. And so the problem here is not the problem. I want to read this very closely. This is what the wicked servant said to his master. Master, I knew you had, excuse me, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. I knew you to be a hard man, so I was afraid and I went And hid. The problem here isn't the problem. The wicked servant didn't lack much outwardly. 
He lacked in his heart. Now he did lack some outwardly. Notice the other two servants, if you read, were given more than him. But he wasn't given nothing. He just wasn't given as much as the other two. But his his problem wasn't that he didn't have as much. His problem was something else. The wicked servant didn't lack much outwardly. He lacked in his heart. And he lacked in heart because he was afraid. And he was afraid because he was telling himself a bad story. I knew you to be a hard man. So I was afraid. So I hid. Come to me. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Listen to me closely, and I am willing to die on this hill. There are very few hills I'm willing to die on. Almost zero. I don't want to die on any hills, but I will die on this hill. God is not a hard man. If God is a hard man, he is not the person that Jesus represented If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, if Jesus is what God looks like when God shines, then God is not a hard man because Jesus was not a hard man. Either that or Jesus is a liar. He said, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. Understand a hard message produces fear and fear pushes people into the dark. Because it doesn't deal with the root. It often frustrates the real issue and actually feeds and empowers bad practices. How many lives have we ruined in the church by preaching a hard on sin message? I want to preach a hard on hard on sin message today. You can't bear good fruit with bad processes and bad processes are themselves often the fruit of another tree bad processes are the fruit of your story and our story is the fruit of another tree still i believe the fruit of our lives grows out of our practices or processes and these processes spring from our identity identity produces processes And processes produce outcomes. Identity produces processes and processes produce outcomes. Our identity is shaped even early in life by the things we decided were good and bad early on. And I don't necessarily even mean morally. That idea comes later. I'll try to explain this in just a minute. But before we even know what we're doing, we're eating from the tree of good and bad. Or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before you even know it, 
Because the wicked servant saw himself as a person who had not. His ideas of good and not good were based on this idea. So he decided that it would be good to hide what he had been given. The wicked servant, yes, he had less than the other two. But that wasn't his problem. His problem was he hid his money because he was afraid. And why was he afraid? Because he had told himself a bad story about the boss man. The problem wasn't the problem. The problem was something else. And if you think about it, this is highly reminiscent of another story. Am I wrong? Let's look at Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw the tree, that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's funny, by the way, the first piece of technology ever invented was to cover man's junk. It's true. We've been doing that with technology ever since. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. I love God's response here was like, who said you were naked? You're naked, naked. Who said you were naked? I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So here lies the story arc for all humankind. See, I think the original sin was not that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. In my opinion, the original sin was that while in paradise, Adam and Eve felt lack. Think about it. What was the temptation? God is holding out on you. You are missing out. There's something you could have, but you don't. You're not enough on your own. What God has given you is not enough. You need this new thing. You need, you need, you need, you need, you need. Have you ever noticed how everything that scripture calls sinful seems to stem from a sense of lack? Why would I bear false witness? Why would I steal? Why would I murder? Why would I covet? Why would I commit adultery? Why would I have any other gods before me? Why would I use the name of God for my own selfish purposes? Why would I not rest on the Sabbath? There's only one line of thinking that would make you not want to follow any of these instructions. is that you're lacking in something. 
Just think about it. Think of any situation where you would do one of those things and try and come up with a reason that doesn't involve feeling a sense of lack. Why would I kill someone? Well, there's only a few reasons why you would ever kill anybody. One is you want what they have. Number two is you're afraid they're going to hurt you first. Or you're a serial killer. But if you notice, serial killers are not very happy people. They're people who lack a lot in certain departments, right? It's like sin all seems to stem from a sense of lack. The only reason you would ever be tempted to do any of these things is because you feel like you lack something and you are afraid. All this to say, I don't believe that sin is a list of magically bad actions. Don't get me wrong. There are actions that bring really, really bad consequences. And if you ask me, this is what the judgment of God usually is. Not that he's mad, but that the world has been set up in a certain way by him. If you jump off a building, you will be judged by the pavement But the ground is not mad at you. But it will seem to smack you if you test gravity from a high altitude. At the end of the day, I want to say this type of worldview where sin and righteousness are simple lists of good and bad actions is kind of like the problem that isn't really the problem. Righteousness is not simply managing your actions and appetites. Don't get me wrong. Managing your appetites is wise. But you can get real good at managing yourself and still be an incredibly miserable human being. Like the older brother and the prodigal son. Who was the real prodigal in that story? The one who left and returned? Or the one whose heart was always impoverished and separate from his family and the people who loved him? Who was the real prodigal? I'm convinced that sin is simply what naturally flows from a life of internal lack. I'm convinced that sin is simply what naturally flows from a life of internal lack. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was anxious because I felt vulnerable, so I ignored my responsibilities. I was intimidated because I felt powerless, so I responded in anger. I was hurt because I felt unseen, so I became hateful. I was traumatized because I was not equipped to handle conflict, so I assumed the posture of a victim. I was destabilized because the world around me was changing, so I postured myself beside a group that made me feel strong. A tyrant is a survivor who never stops surviving. A person who needs more than they need because they are afraid to lose. We've probably all been survivors at some point. Some of us more than others maybe. But we cannot afford to assume the identity of a survivor or we will hurt other people. It's okay to be a survivor, but that can't be your identity. See, your identity... Once again, produces processes which produce outcomes. And it's a loop. Because those outcomes speak back in to your identity. Your identity produces processes which produce outcomes. And the outcomes speak back into your identity. It's a loop. Adam feels naked. That produces fear. Which produces hiding. 
Hiding produces more nakedness because he's detached from God. So rinse and repeat over and over and over again, right? And this is the story of us all. I believe sin is the story, the lie we tell ourselves about who we need to be in order to be loved, safe, or significant in a very frightening and dangerous world. Sin is the lie we tell ourselves about who we need to be in order to be loved, safe, or significant in a very frightening and dangerous world. We all feel vulnerable. And seek to cover our vulnerability the best way we know how. We usually do this before we can even remember. Even as a child, at some point you felt like something was missing. And so you, even subconsciously, decided who you needed to become in order to not feel that way again. Without knowing it, you created a version of yourself. So we each craft this identity based out of fear of some vulnerability in order to become who we think we need to be in the world. And it even works for a little while. It works, of course, until it doesn't work. Still, most of us keep barreling through life inside this made-up story until we hit a wall. Until all of a sudden, we're lost because we've hidden ourselves inside this story for so long that we actually believe it's who we are. Like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. How much you want to bet I can throw a football over them mountains? Well, if coach would have put me in the fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions. No doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things would have been different. I'd have gone pro in a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere, soaking it up in a hot tub with my soulmate. It did not happen for Uncle Rico. So what happens when the story you made up for yourself doesn't work anymore? I mean, this is hard. Once again, I guess this is what we come to church for, right? To talk about the not fun stuff sometimes. But what happens when you're the faithful, loving mom? You give the best years of your whole life to raising kids, but now you wake up and their rooms are empty. Because they did what you raised them to do. They grew up. Who are you now? What do you do when you started a company and made a bunch of money, but you don't believe in your work anymore? You're bored and you feel purposeless, but you still need the money. Or so do others. So you keep the machine running. What happens when you're the pretty one? And one day you wake up and realize you're not pretty the way you used to be pretty. You're still Beautiful, just not the kind of beautiful that gets likes on Instagram or gets you noticed in a crowd of people. Who are you now? What do you do when you're the preacher who wakes up and you're not sure if you believe exactly the way you did when you started out in your 20s? But you still have this group of people looking to you for guidance and leadership. What do you do? Who are you? Maybe you're the fun-loving party person. You're the last to leave the party. Everyone invites you over because you're just so much fun. You make friends easy and go with the flow. But one day you wake up and your health is not so great and you start to notice your friends can't hang out as late as they used to. 
and you feel a little lost in the world because the fun, loving party guy doesn't have a party to go to anymore. Who are you? Who are you now? Maybe you went through a really traumatic season. You were legitimately a victim or hurt by somebody in some way. Or maybe you lost somebody you loved. Maybe you broke up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or went through a divorce. And at first, everyone rallied around you and consoled you and listened to you for a season. But then after a while, you noticed you have a hard time trusting people. You have a hard time making friends. And also, people are avoiding you. People won't sit and listen like they used to. You're a train wreck on Instagram and your friends are embarrassed for you. By the way, I feel like this has probably been me at some point in my life. If it sounds like I'm talking about you, it's not true. Or it is. It's just because this is like 700 people that I know. This is everybody. So don't take it personally. But maybe you grew up with an angry mother or father, so the goal wasn't to impress them as much as to stay off the radar. Nobody moves, nobody gets hurt. So you spent much of your life trying to be easygoing and invisible, but now you see your friends are doing things you wish you could be doing. You want things out of life that you don't have because you're afraid to apply yourself. Money is tight because you keep getting looked over at the office when you should probably step up and get noticed because your work is good and you got a family now. Still, part of you is ashamed and afraid to look like you're trying. What if you're the good one? You were always good. You did everything right. But at some point in your life, you got pushed into a corner and did something that you're not entirely proud of. Who are you then? Is this getting heavy? My point here is that the problem isn't the problem. The problem isn't the problem. Because you have long forgotten that the football guy, Uncle Rico, the success hound, the mom lady, the party animal, the victim, the easygoing, invisible person, they were never actually you. They're someone you made up to survive, and they actually were really helpful for you at a time. But after their moment has passed, they start to look more and more like a grotesque zombie from The Walking Dead. And like the undead, they're causing problems and it's getting uncomfortable because God is walking. Because God, God is walking through your garden, the garden of your life. And it's terrifying. Because to lose our st- to lose our story means we must, in a sense, lose ourselves. And it feels like dying. It feels like going to the cross. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. To find yourself again in God's story means that part of you has got to die. But it's okay. Because it was never really you. 
See, Adam was naked and clothed himself in fear, but God who was clothed in glory became naked in Jesus so that we would not have to be afraid to be who we are. If the son of God had to shed his own identity, then on the day when you no longer know who you are, you can know that it's going to be okay because Jesus will be with you. And in him, you never stopped being the person that God dreamt up from the beginning. There are times in every person's life when the story you tell yourself about the world has got to change. I wish I had some Kleenex up here. Is it possible? Oh! Ah! Oh. You gonna mute the microphone here, buddy? There are times in every person's life when the story you tell yourself about the world has got to change. And when we do this with God, we call it repentance. Don't you hate that word? I think the word repentance has a bad rap. I think we've misunderstood that word. Probably abused it not probably we have definitely abused that word but i want to read something that my friend ray hollenbach wrote to kind of wrap this up imagine receiving a message so good that it caused you to rethink your entire life a total stranger has paid off your student loans your abusive husband has turned the corner and now treats you like a queen the doctors called to say the diagnosis was wrong And you don't have cancer after all. The bank made a mistake years ago calculating your mortgage and sends you a notice that your house is paid off. All of these examples represent the best kind of news. No more coupon clipping. Your future is no longer clouded by debt. No more walking on eggshells, afraid that some trivial event will anger your spouse. Your fears of endless treatments and therapies vanish in a moment. A new reality has come from afar and has pitched its tent with you. The old reality is gone. A new day is born. But you quickly discover a problem. The morning after the good news arrives, you wake up still worried about the money, still afraid that your husband will relapse, or you wake up in a sweat thinking about hospitals and death. And no wonder we've spent years, even decades, thinking about life based upon these problems. Financial woes have been daily woes. Fear of abuse has been factored into every choice you make. Health concerns are like an unwanted house guest who has moved in forever. Even though good news has come, the old habits die hard. It feels like those habits of the mind have made a permanent place in your life. Reality has changed, but your ways of thinking have not. You are, in fact, free, but you are still trapped inside of your head. You need one thing more. Your old ways of thinking must go. 
to receive good news, to really receive it, to take it in and discover a new freedom requires a new way of thinking. This new way of thinking has a biblical name, repentance. I know you thought repentance meant things like remorse, determination, trying harder or feeling guilty, but someone has lied to you. At its very core, the word repent means to rethink your life. I think we need to make space for the story of Jesus in our lives. And this can look like prayer, worship, contemplations, and all these types of things. But at the end of the day, these spiritual disciplines, these formational practices, all they do is make a place for God to change us. Prayer doesn't change you. Worship doesn't change you. Contemplation doesn't change you. All those things do is create a place for God to change you. So I want to pray. I think some of us have been frustrated because we tried everything we know to change our processes and our practices, but we've not allowed Jesus to speak into our story. That's one type of person. Two, some of us have totally lost our story. We don't know who we are anymore. Some of us have been living in the wrong story and you're not sure how to get out of it. And some of us have never really considered what it means to follow Jesus. If this is any of you and it's okay, if it is, because it's all of us at some point, it's probably me right now. If that's any of you, uh, I want to pray. You don't have to stand up or anything. Unless you want to. But I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want to engage with you in the story you have for us. Make us brave people. People who are brave enough to let go of the old ideas of who we were. Give us the courage to make a space. Give us the courage not to run when we hear you walking in the garden of our lives. Give us the courage to face the uncomfortability of letting go of the old dead things and embracing the mysterious, kind of scary, but exciting new life that you have for each one of us every day Every morning, new mercies, new mystery, new adventure, new discomfort, new life, new love. And even right now, we just give you a space to come in. We give you a place to begin to deal with some of those things. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The good is trickier than the evil sometimes. Lord, we let go of some of the things that we think are good. The good things that have also been the things that have kept our arms full and kept us from the best things. The good things that have been a distraction from becoming the people that you have dreamed us to be. In the first place, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks for letting me get a little bit deep.
I hope it was not as uncomfortable for you as it was for me. Thank you, thank you. About five or six weeks ago, I had I had a word of knowledge about um, someone with serious foot trouble or fallen arches, and I've mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to make a point here. A woman from South Korea got a miraculous healing listening to that word of knowledge. And she wasn't even listening to it live. And so I don't understand why the Lord does that. But I do know that he does more for people that I pray for than he does for people I ignore. And so I don't know, is there someone here and your name is... Some part of your name is Norma, or it might be Norman. Is there anyone that qualifies to be that person? Anybody? Middle name, last name? You wrote it on the bottom of your skateboard in 1968? Anybody? Well, that's okay. Well, I I do want to say this. How many of you feel like you need to be prayed for. Yeah. Why don't do why don't you cuz this is good. Why don't you if you feel like you need to be prayed for, why don't you stand up? Yeah, just stand up. Because the power of God is in the body of Christ in a real way. And um I want people who uh, would go to you. So some of you get out of your seats, go to these people, ask permission to pray for them. Don't touch them inappropriately. Shoulders are good. And you can do one of two things. You can ask them what they need and pray for them. Or you can pray for them and ask the Lord to give you the prayer or show you what they need. And for Norma or Norman, whoever, wherever, I'm just going to say this. You've got a comeback coming. You've got a resurrection. You've got a return. You have God's desire to do a big turnaround in your life. So to whom it may concern. Father, I pray everyone. There's someone over here standing and no one's praying for her. Please, someone. Raise your hand if you're standing and no one's praying for you. Wave at me. I don't want anybody. Anybody can pray something simple. This gentleman right here. So, Father, we release your care, your provision, your power. Your Bible tells us the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. He will make alive. He will quicken. He will transform. He will change. He will release. He will enlighten. He will encourage. So, Father, we ask 
right now in Jesus' name for each one of these people that expressed a need that you would touch them. Your touch would come, Spirit of God. Your kindness would come. We thank you for faith, Lord, to lay hands on people and release your goodness to them. That you know them by name. We're going to keep praying. Um, We'll also have prayer teams up at the end if you need extra. Christopher, why don't you go ahead and put some music on and we'll be dismissed. I'm preaching next week. We have Ted Kim the next week, so we've got a lot of good things coming. And tell your friends about us. Come see us. God bless you. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.